we can also think about bad in a lot of different ways. We can think about people who are bad and who are gay. Uh, we can think about people who are bad at being gay. Um, we can think about people who are thought of as really bad in their time, but actually when we look back, we think that they did a lot right or that they've been remembered unfairly terribly. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So you've heard a few of my San Francisco Queer History Conference guests before. We've had Dominic Janes. Um, we've had Jesse Tade with Queer Modernism. And I am really thrilled because we actually have a podcaster in the house here, a independent queer scholar, a um, doctoral fellow, he is all things bad gays. I'm really curious to see if his work matches his lifestyle. But, you know, I'll do my investigative reporting here for you all and maybe open up about my own bad gay uh, experiences. It was going to be this kind of a show, Andrew. I know. Well, <laughs> I didn't tell you this was going to be the only fan section, but I am so happy uh. because I'm with Ben Miller, who I want to introduce him to you all. Ben, and I hope I say where he is correctly, but if not, he can pronounce it for me. But he is a writer and researcher living in Berlin. He's a doctor, doctoral fellow at the Graduate School of Global Intellectual History at the Free Universität. Freie Universität, but yeah, not bad. There we go. You know, I'm doing my Northeast Jersey, New York now accent, but okay. Yeah. I like your German pronunciation. Better. If you want, if you want me to get real Boston, I can start talking like my cousin Janice from up in the North Shaw, but that's better. You know what? You want, I think. Let's see. We'll take on different personas. Let's see what kind of accents we oh. can do throughout the episode. But he's written for the New York Times, Literary Hub, Los Angeles Review of Books, Tin House and Radical History Review. He is the author of the new queer photography and he also is a board of director for the, how do you pronounce the museum, Ben? Schwules Museum. There you go, Schwules Museum. Very German. Is it in Germany? It is in Berlin. Oh, good. Okay. Um, one of the world's largest independent queer museums and archives. And here I am holding up the book that he did with his um, co-writer. Uh, let's shout uh, your co-writer out. Um, Hugh Lemmy, is it the wonderful, Hugh Lemmy. brilliant Hugh Lemmy, who I want to thank so much. Here, I'll just set that behind me. Um, yes. So Ben Gaze. I want to thank so much for uh, for everything he's done on the project. Um, and I mean, we'll get into we'll get into the, to the starting of it, but um, it was an enormously important part of it. Half of it, if not more. A couple people have asked me privately uh, what it was like to publish a first book, and I can tell anyone who's looking to publish a first book that you should write it with Hugh Lemmy, because then half of it will be written by Hugh Lemmy and not by you, which means that half of it will be really good. So yes, thanks to Hugh Lemmy, shout out uh, in absentia. Uh, but Bad Gays, A Homosexual History is the book's title. I love the publisher, it's Verso, which is kind of counter the ivory tower in a way, does some really avant-garde type of academia that I love. Um, but your podcast is called Bad Gays too. So it is. everyone, Bad Gays is what we're talking about. And let's start there, Ben. When did just bad gays as a phrase enter your vernacular. So bad gays uh, started as, it started out of the friendship between me and Hugh, which started because our mutual friend, Michael introduced us um, when I was visiting uh, some people. I had friends of mine who were on vacation in Barcelona and I would, did that thing that you do sometimes. You're like, oh, tickets are really cheap. I'll just like go join them for the weekend. So I went and joined them for the weekend. And my friend Mikey found out that I was going and uh, Hugh lives in Barcelona and said, you have to meet my friend Hugh, you have to meet my friend Hugh. And I got like 170 messages about how I had to meet Hugh. Um, and Hugh apparently got 170 messages about how he had to meet me. And both of us were like, oh, uh, fine. And so we set up this, what we then later figured out was mutually like multiple excuses built in half hour begrudging coffee. Um, and we ended up hanging out that afternoon for nine and a half hours from coffee shop to bar to dinner to bar to, to et cetera, having this conversation about all of the stuff that ended up being what this show became. 
Uh, and then a couple of months after that, Hugh said, you know, I've had this idea for a show for a while. It's called Bad Gays. I want to do a podcast about evil gays. Um, and I kind of want to do it with a historian. Uh, what do you think? Let's do it together. And because I'm really smart, I said no, um, because I said we don't know how to make radio, which was true. Anyone who suffered through the audio quality of our first season uh, knows. Um, but as it turns out, that didn't matter so much. Um, and the other reason is I didn't, I hoped there would be an audience for what we wanted to do, but I wasn't as sure as he was. Um, and, uh, even in our sort of wildest dreams, we thought, gee, we could maybe have 500 people listen to these episodes. Um, and we're now at a point where the show has been downloaded about one and a half million times. Uh, a new episode will be listened to by 15,000 people in its first week. Um, and what I think we've shown, uh, contra the beliefs of a lot of commissioning editors and, um, I want to say here, despite being very indie with this show, I work with editors and media institutions a lot. I like them. I like being edited. I think editors are great. Um, as much as it's nice to have indie podcasting, stuff like Substack, ways to kind of generate income off of your own work. One of the things I worry that we lose with that is these kinds of relationships with editors that are often so productive and important. Um, but commissioning editors specifically, um, and I think especially when it comes to queer topics, tend to be really conservative, small c conservative, about what they think audiences are ready for. And I don't mean shying away from queer topics at all because they think audiences aren't ready for that, although that is also the case. Um, what I mean is there's really an assumption that anything queer has to be on a 101 level or people aren't going to get it. It has to be the most basic, the most simple, not a single concept that needs to be explained, everything just really laid out. Mm. And I think that is important. But I also think there are now enough people who are ourselves queer, who have taken the one gender studies class, who know people who are interested, who have read the one book, who have read the annual Pride Month Guardian 20 Gays in History You Should Know feature, um, and just kind of have that internalized. Um, I think there are now a critical mass of people who are ready to go to the next level and who are ready to have a more adult and a more interesting and a more accurate and a more justice-oriented conversation about queer life, about queer history, about who we are, about what we are. Um, and I think that that is the place where we can start to heal or start to, to repair this really uh, astonishing rift in the way that people talk about queer history. Um, no, no, thank you. Yeah, which is I, when people yeah. talk about queer history inside academic and activist spaces at this point, as you know, as everyone listening to this show knows, we all have our John D'Amelio, our Foucault internalized. We all know that um, sexual identities themselves are new. We all know that the social institutions around the self-conceptions of same-sex loving, romantic and erotic behavior and gender trouble are different over time and in different sex gender systems and in different places. And yet, um, basically no one talks about queer history that way in public at all. And that was really the thing that we wanted to kind of pin this to. And so we can do this kind of stealth propaganda for the social construction theory of homosexuality um, through telling the stories of some really interesting people in a fun and salacious and narrative oriented way. And that's the concept of the show and the book. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. You bring up the phrase evil gaze or I'm surprised and maybe you can explain this that already bad gaze has this subversive you're countering the um, ethical, moral almost gay liberation type of idea that we've had Michaela Grifo on this show who was part of the gay liberation front. She was in the first pride March and she even said there was the gay cisgender, a lot of white men who were trying to do respectability politics. And that became an issue for, you know, her work with lesbians um, and just trying to open up conversations and I love that already bad gaze counters this notion of the respectability politics of we have to have the martyrs, the saviors of especially gay white men. But in a way, 
evil would be such an interesting to think about um, how that would have gone down if you had used evil. Like, have you thought about the difference between bad and evil? For sure. One of the things that we like about both bad and gay um, when we approach the making of the show is that both of them can mean basically whatever we want. Um, so we can use a word like gay and both point to the continuities between or inspiration taken from much older forms of same-sex and gender-troubled behavior um, than, than our sort of current identity models. Um, and we can also think about bad in a lot of different ways. We can think about people who are bad and who are gay. Uh, we can think about people who are bad at being gay. Um, we can think about people who are thought of as really bad in their time, but actually when we look back, we think that they did a lot right or that they've been remembered unfairly terribly. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So, enjoy your reading, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, we can talk about some real irredeemable shits. Um, we can talk about people who the episode and the conversation is a lot more humorous, even if there are very serious things they did, they did wrong, right? Some of our essays are, some of our, our essays, some of our episodes are about literal Nazis, right? And some of our episodes are about eccentric English noblemen who took over islands in the Bahamas, right? And that's two different, that's two different tones. Um, and that's two different kinds of storytelling. Um, and so that's, I think, why we settled on bad. And, and we say, when we have to define bad more, we say evil and complicated, uh, because evil and complicated, I think, spans the, spans the gamut of, of uh, what it is that, that we talk about in the, in the project. Yeah, well, and because we've had conversations before at the conference, and I know you, I know I can jump right into uh, the more salacious slash controversial side, which is 
I'm just curious as a fellow podcaster, as a queer male academic, um, that even myself, I faced, um, it might've been the title ivory tower boiler room. Who knows? It's kind of breaking away from the academic language, what we do with our PhD, which I'm sure you have your own uh, view of with your independent scholarly work, which bad gaze is a prime example of what you can do with your PhD and how you're bringing this out to the public. Did you face any backlash, any um, countering that you're now bringing this in a more accessible way for the public? I have been really um, moved, and I think Hugh and I both have been really have been really moved and appreciated by the extremely generous response that we have gotten to the show from all sides, um, from academics, from people who aren't academics. That distinction is really not important to me at all. Um, people sometimes think that the show. I mean, I do still. My academia is. My main job, right? I am a PhD fellow. I'm getting a PhD. I am paid. It is a salary. It goes into later this year. Um, that is the bulk of my income is coming out of that right now. Um, and Hugh is not. Um, Hugh went to art school, right? And people sometimes think that um, the the tone of the show um, is half Hugh and half me, right? Half the sort of forward facing, arty, interesting side, and then I'm bringing the facts. Um, and actually, that there is no difference between how Hugh and I think, really. Um, really, one of the things I've learned on learned by working on this is how much, um, I mean, I absolutely do think that the professional training that we're both doing has value um, and is important, but I don't think it is a sea change in how we think, right? I think we still can think about things in, in similar ways. And I think there are a lot of people who are thinking in ways that are really rigorous and really interesting, and they're doing that in a lot of different places, and that's good. Um, whether they're being properly paid for, it's a different question, but that's, you know, we, we, we can't get into that right now. Um, so really, the response from all quarters has been really positive. Um, th that does not mean that it's been only praise, but it means that the vast, vast majority of the critique that we've gotten has been in really good faith. Um, and when we get good faith critique, we also respond in good faith, right? We don't respond to crazed Morrissey fans saying, how could you say he was racist and the word you and racist are both misspelled, right? But when we get a long letter from someone talking about how we approached some really complicated issue, right? Like the history of the relationship between pederasty, child sexual abuse, and gay male identity, one of the most difficult to talk about things in the world. Um, then we will write back, we will have a long conversation, and more often than not, that conversation will inform how we approach the topic in the future. And that has been a huge part of how the show itself has evolved, and that has been a huge reason why we have felt more confident, I think, in recent seasons to go places topically, to go places in terms of time, um, to go places in terms of the kind of subjectivity matrix of the person that we're talking about that I don't think we would have gone in season one. And a, an example for you is um, season one was all men. And in every episode of season one, I made this little joke that the reason we were doing it about only men is because men were definitionally more evil, ha ha ha, right? And uh, at the end of the uh, season, we got an episode, uh, we got an episode, we got a letter from uh, a lesbian listener who said, listen, I like the show. However, um, you're making this show that is really about how we're getting away from essentialism, right? And there's all these different things at play. And so why are you opening every episode with this fucked up essentialist joke, right? I want to be part of this too. And on the one hand, yes, correct. And on the other hand, um, two gay guys who maybe didn't want to start making a show by listing off all the lesbians we hate, um, suddenly hear from someone that this is actually wanted, right? And so it's gaining the it's gaining the courage um, and also the knowledge. Um, and that's something that we've had really extensive conversations with listeners about um, and that we've been really grateful for. Um, I think another reason why academics in particular have been very generous to the book is that we have been very generous to their work. Um, this is, the show and the book are both uh, very generously cited uh, in comparison to this kind of public facing thing 
Um, and we do that on purpose because we think it's important. Um, and we hope that people who are interested in some of the topics that we're talking about will be able to find their way to some of the books and other sources that we use to tell the stories that we tell. Um, so, you know, whether that's a book uh, or a source uh, or something that really comes back in every single episode or in every single season. And so people are just continually hearing about it and they decide, okay, maybe it's time for me to actually get into this myself. Um, or whether it's one particular person who really compels someone and they're like, you know what, I need to read this book about uh, gay life in Victoria and London. I need to read this book about what have you. Um, and so that's, those are the two things that I think have been really important in terms of how we've articulated um, a relationship with listeners who are kind of thinking along with us, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I think what I relate to you and I admire so much when I was reading Bad Gays, when I'm listening to one of your podcast episodes, or I love the audiobook too. It's mm -hmm. really well done, which makes sense because, you know, um, the writing does play so well as narrative because of the transcripts that you use, like whether it be that I love the pornography book um, that's referenced. The Jack Saul. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. What is it called for everyone out there, Ben? Jack Saul is the chapter. And actually, the most recent episode on our feed is a live show we did in London when we were touring the book where he oh. and I read that chapter and all of the... Um, salacious bits uh, all the block quotes are read out by the inimitable and brilliant sean fay who is the author of the transgender issue uh, which is out in the uk already and i think is about to come out in the us but it's one of the really best um overviews of a kind of justice-based argument for trans liberation that i've ever read so shout out to sean and it was really lovely to have her around for the for that episode and she also just reads them Mwah. it's wonderful uh. Well, we might have to have Sean um, Things on featured show. in this episode include uh, yeah. delicious frigging up the bum with a reach around, masturbation into an open fire. Um, fun for the whole family. You know? Yeah, well, thank you. Okay, transgen the transgender issue. I need to put the on my list. Transgender issue, and I think it has a subtitle um, in the US. Okay, well, I will be on the lookout and reach out to Sean um, because that sounds like a fascinating discussion. But... Um, Something that is really resonating with me, Ben, when you keep you're talking about the topics, you're talking about um, who's featured, whether it be Bozy encountering the Oscar Wilde, Lord Douglas narrative, and it's not countering, but offering Bozy's side. That's what I should say. Um, mm -hmm. Is with a backlash, I agree with you. The audience is so responsive, especially. Those are my favorite moments is hearing who the audience is out there. All of you listening, when you, they message us on social media, they, um, you know, say, oh, that really resonated. Or I'm so happy that we have these critical debates and discussions. And like, I always try, I think I've let myself stand in my own power of being openly gay as an academic claiming that space, not being afraid of such nuanced discussions. And, you know, on my show, it's a little different, I would say, because I have guests where I don't agree with all their opinions and that's not my purpose. Like, I'm not supposed to show my cards. My purpose is to get everything out of you, Ben, the guest. And it can be really interesting, though, because it creates the space where um, we're... You do it in the way, though, with your your guests are the actual figures in history, right? They are, whether it be Hadrian, whether it be Bozy, whether it, um, you know, be Roy Cohn, for example. Um, and I think that that's so important because it does speak to the current age, which is how we're intersecting with media, with our work. So I love everything you're saying about connecting to media. Um, I think what I'm seeing in academia that isn't, there's a disconnect. It's not a disconnect with specific people. It's a disconnect more with an institution of a university that doesn't, I don't think they yet know how to be so public facing with media, um, that there, 
it's I feel like they're trying to catch up to something that's already been happening so much in the podcast sphere. I mean, the, the German university is trying to catch up so much and is so far behind and has so few comparatively so few resources at the administrative level that the institution is irrelevant to my work. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Right. It would matter if my supervisor and my little program, my colleague, which is the Graduate School of Global Intellectual History, which is a really, it's been an extraordinary um, intellectual working environment. I have nothing but good things to say about the, that cluster. Um, and we're treated very well. Um, and our, our, um, our uh, program director, Sebastian Conrad, is a really fine historian. Um, and um, yeah, great place. Mm -hmm. uh, and he and my PhD supervisor, Margaret Pernow, and everyone there have been just nothing but wonderful and supportive about this whole thing. Um, and that's what has mattered. And the institution doesn't matter. The history department doesn't matter because in comparison to the US, they don't exist, right? They have no capacity to even know what any of this is. Um, and so that's been like to even know that it's happening, never mind to know what it is. Like there's no history department administrator who's trying to track what grad students are doing. Like there's just none, none of that at all, um, which has been really, uh, good, actually, for me. <laughs> I just kind of get to do it. It gives you the space. Um, yes, it gives me the space. It. Yeah, it gives me the space, and I've, and it's been it's been possible to just do a lot um, without the institution being in my way. Um, there are all kinds of disadvantages to that as well. Um, I mean, the German academic system is is in some ways even worse than the U.S. in terms of labor conditions and how the labor market exists, um, which we can get into or not. Uh, but there's just, I guess the headline there is that because there is no tuition fees um, and the state funding for the higher education is not sufficient to make up the cost, the administrative level especially is comparatively non-existent. There is no program coordinators, there's no student life offices, there's no... Um, departmental administrators there's no like it's just all of that stuff is just withered on the vine it doesn't exist basically um and so the the professors themselves have an extreme a, a very large amount of power then there's this kind of academic middle group that's on these very unstable jobs that does most of the actual work in teaching um and then they the professor is kind of the place where the power sits not the department and not the institution if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah no it does well, so I love what you're saying, though, about I agree with you. I've had such support from my dissertation committee. Shout out to them, too. Um, but in a way, you know, this type of what we're doing with our media space, with our voice, our narratives, um, 
is not about institutional um acceptability like we're we're not interested in the gatekeeping right that's exactly what these projects are counter to um and i find that though that's such it's almost being i always say i'm an academic entrepreneur that's how i identify myself because i feel that way it's we're i feel as if i'm a free agent um and i love like when we met at the queer history conference there is something so freeing in that you have so many different personas in a way of what where we disseminate our knowledge, or at least I feel this, that we can go to a conference, we can get published in more, say, the, you know, traditional, quote unquote, even though I don't agree that they're traditional anymore, but academic publications, um, because they're trying to reshape their own vision of how they publish digitally. Right. I mean, so many now are digital. They're not print publications um, that. Yeah, things are changing. They are. Um, there is innovation happening. Um, but did you have a time with bad gaze where. It seems like you're not, you know, what's great is you're in such a healthy progression that you don't listen to the naysayers. But did you ever feel, oh, me working on. Bozy is going to seem as if I'm a reaffirming his, say, anti-Semitic views. Like, did you ever feel trapped in that or no? No, no, um, not at all. Um, I mean, I think the more common criticism that we've gotten has not been from academics and has not been from institutions. It's been from liberal gays who have said, well, do we really need to be talking about this in public? Or are these really the things that we need to be focusing on? Or aren't you aren't you putting stuff out there that's going to be used, right, by the right to, to attack us? Um, and I want to pause here before I dismiss that criticism and say that there is a um, global backlash at the moment, one that I think we will defeat, but one that is terrifying um, against... Uh, all queer people, uh, trans kids are at the front line of that. Um, in the US, basically every day, some state legislature introduces some horrifying and near genocidal bill, um, and it's happening all across the world at the moment. Um, and that just needs to be named and put out there, and this backlash is very real. Um, that being said, um, I don't think that they need our help in order to do that. I think they're doing that just fine on their own. And I think there are actually uh, something that Hugh and I, I think, both feel is that um, this backlash at the moment that is putting the kind of gay and lesbian civil rights consensus um, seemingly at risk. Um, there is something about how that consensus was fought and constructed that enables um, or that makes easier that backlash. Um, and that by talking about some of these things openly, um, and together we can begin to figure out what a functional queer politics for everybody, to use a phrase from, from Holly Lewis, politics of everybody, would look like uh, and how that could actually succeed in defeating these forces in a way that seemingly the kind of um, liberal civil rights consensus has not been able to. Yeah, wow, that's powerful. Very powerful. Um, and I think what I'm so enamored and excited about with your work, Ben, is it's how I feel. Like, even right. if I'm talking about Playgirl and its history or, you know, scandalous topics about literary Fire Island, but even my own journey on Fire Island and opening myself up more in this we're in a way talk show hosts in a way it, it has that um, feel for me um, that in academics, that isn't How what they doing? were known. To, what? How you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Wendy Williams. Oh, I miss her. Um, but I know, <laughs> but that academics weren't used to that type of very peeling back the layers of their own personality and that, oh, this is my subjectivity, right? Because you're not really, the notion was you weren't really supposed to show like 20 years ago who was behind the writing, 
but it's changed so much, right? We have auto theory. We've I've had discussions with academics on this podcast about their memoir style in their writing. Um, that um, things are really intriguing to me about how, in a way, academics have to um, at least show their personality, or at least, you know, some don't, and that's their choice, right? Some don't want to embrace the social media sphere. And I understand that uh, for privacy reasons. But at the same time, you know, if I want to per like, if we want to post a thirsty photo, you know, that's a type of way, a way of showing uh, the academics of sport, or at least I kind of frame it as I'm being a queer ac- <laughs> my <laughs> Ben's face is so funny right now, sure, but sure, a gay sure thirsty academic analysis. Sure jam. Um, um, but it is enjoyable in my opinion because we have to tell ourselves to get through the day. Yeah, I mean, exactly. But we're talking about it. That's the important point. This, I think that this, I think that these modes of expression are available to us now is good. Um, and I think we need to also acknowledge the people who did that work, um, to make them accessible to us when it was not particularly convenient, Mm -hmm. right? Um, from the uh, black feminists, right? Many of whom did never worked in an academic institution or context. Um, many of whom still need our help and support to have dignified older years. Shout out to the Barbara Smith Caring Circle, which exists to support Barbara Smith, who was one of the members of the Comedy River Collective. But mm. um, right, uh, those people, um, those people's work uh, needs to be acknowledged. In terms of us, um, I think someone we need to be talking about when we talk about this is Martin Duberman, who. Um, was in the closet, was at Princeton, was having the most traditional academic career you could imagine. And then because of the influence of the gay socialist reading groups in in New York City, comes out of the closet in a book about Black Mountain College, which is a book that I think any historian who's interested in this kind of collective biography or how you write with yourself in there, I think it's really like I think it's as good. I've learned as much from that book as I've learned from like a Natalie Zeman Davis or a Carlo Ginsburg in terms of that kind of approach to writing. Um, it's just a really, I love that book so much. Um, and he comes out in it. Um, and then he moves to the City University of New York, makes less money, has less prestige, um, and says, no, I need to be doing this work in a public institution, right? And like that, that, that kind of person who's actually putting themselves at risk by doing it is the model. And I think the question for us is how do we move out of satisfaction, right, and into actual risk? Um, and uh, the other thing that I would say is, while I am glad that these modes of expression are available to us, I do worry about um, the degree to which people are expected to make themselves available in order to have careers in any kind of a creative or intellectual place um, or space, right? Uh, I was listening to an interview that Courtney Love just did um, with uh, Mark Marin on his show. Um, that's a wonderful interview everyone should listen to. The best moment is when she's like, I'm making a new album. And he says, what's the genre? And she says, magnum opus. Um, but <laughs> like iconic, but um, she talks about, and I'm now, of course I'm forgetting the word that she uses, um, but he asks her why she moved to the UK and why she left LA. And she says, I had to get away from, let's say it's monoculture, but it wasn't. Like I had to get away from it. He's like, so what does that mean? What is the monoculture? And she says, well, it's this thing now and I'm so glad I came up before this, where if you're one of these people and you're trying to become a musician, you, your everything has to be visible. It is not about what you make, it is about you. It's about selling you and it's about selling you from every angle, from selling you going to Starbucks to get a coffee, to selling you on stage, to selling you in the fashion ad, to selling you on the red carpet. And it's like a 360 product, right? Mm-hmm. That's obviously not the level of scrutiny to which you and I or any academic is being subject thank God. But I think there is something of that in the way that we are now expected and people are now expected to produce themselves as personal brands, um, as an completely unpaid part of developing the profile necessary to compete for one of the few jobs, right? Um, And as much as people who do the public facing work like to whine about the ways that the institutions don't recognize it, right? Increasingly, they actually do. 
Um, and increasingly, that's that is something that is making a difference in hiring decisions. It certainly is something that's making a high difference in hiring decisions in the UK, where my partner works, um, and where a lot of people that I that I work with work. And and so the the expectation, the shifting expectation towards all of that kind of self production and self promotion, um, is not only a good thing, right? It's good. It's good that we can, uh, but it's bad that we have to, um, and that people who I think, I mean, we've all. We've all seen the results of people who don't particularly like or understand social media being forced to use it a lot and how terrible that can be for those people, both in terms of what it does to people's thinking and also if and when people break unwritten rules, how things can come crashing down on them um, in ways that are so damaging and for which there's no support. And so it's it's a really difficult balancing act um, for me to figure out what how I feel about all of that. And it's, it's worth, it's worth, I think, talking about all the sides of it. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also, I love that you're offering this <clears throat> discussion right now, which is that like the work you're doing, the work I'm doing, you don't have to be as public facing. We're not saying for academics to necessarily have to be public facing and forcing that. Like for me, I love it. I wouldn't be here if I didn't love having this type of public platform of what I consider public scholarship, humanities, um, because I think we're in desperate need of talking to all different audiences and also not seeing ourselves as academics in every decision we make, because I think that's not healthy, in my opinion. Um, but also that the university isn't where we can just thrive with our academics, right? Like, who's to say, Ben, that we don't get hired for serious radio, or I've always thought about that, or for a television program, or I've even seen, oh, maybe there'll be a reality TV opportunity that not, um, right, but you have to, there's certain choices that I'm seeing now with people who have PhDs who are in so many fields that the university, um, it was thought that's what you do with a humanities PhD, but in the numbers, that's not true at all. The majority actually don't work at a university. Um, if we looked at who right. has a PhD. And, and, and certain fields like history have collapsed, right? And it, it's not that people have gotten so, it's not that people are doing all of this stuff out of, and I'm really, I am not complaining about my own situation. I think my own situation is good. And I knew a lot of this going in and I was, I'm glad that I started a little bit later in life. I'm really glad I did not start a PhD program at 2021. Um, and I'm really glad that I did not start a PhD program with the delusion that I was gonna become a professor um, easily, right? But there are a lot of people who still do. Um, and these fields in terms of new hiring in the US have essentially collapsed, right? There are there were three jobs in, if I was hired in the US, which I wouldn't be because I have a German PhD, um, I would be hired in like modern US, modern Europe or global probably, like no one has a queer chair or a queer job yet, except for two places, right? And altogether in the US last year, that was probably six tenure track jobs, maybe seven, right? For which you have six people from Yale, six people from Princeton, six people from Harvard, six people from Berkeley, uh, six people from Chicago. Um, and uh, those are the people, six people from Michigan maybe, right? And those are the people who are actually gonna get those jobs and float them up between them somehow. Um, and then everyone else is running around after the same adjuncting opportunities, right? That is what it looks like in basically every subfield. Um, and so people are getting creative and I think that's good. And I do think that there are a lot of things that you can do with a humanities PhD that are not being an academic. Um, however, it is still the case that it can be very difficult to talk about your desire to do any of those things um, or to train to do any of those things during the PhD without alienating your supervisor, your program, without singling yourself out as someone who does not deserve attention and support um, and without um, feeling like a failure and being told that you make your supervisor feel like a failure. Um, and that is absolutely not my experience. And so that's something that I am extremely grateful for once again. Uh, but this is absolutely something that I think goes on, something that I hear about from friends, colleagues. And I, I don't know what the, what the precise solution is. I think that no one should be admitted to a humanities PhD under the delusion that they are going to become a tenured professor of anything. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think that programs need to be much more honest about what the outcomes actually look like. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that it is still a decision that is going to make sense for a lot of people. Uh, but I think if we could start thinking about these programs as producing work and scholarship and that, that, that that's enough, um, that maybe we could we could have a more kind of adult conversation within the profession and not have as many people end up feeling really frustrated and run through and ending up in really bad financial, emotional, um, and life situations because they're crashing out of a career in their late 30s, early 40s um, with very little training in anything else. Um, and it's, I mean, I, I don't want to sugarcoat that reality by talking about how great it is that everyone is is suddenly developing all these other little side projects. And I do think it's great. And I do think that a lot of people are doing really interesting work. Um, but, but I think that there needs to be much more we need to have a, and the other conversation that we need to have is if these fields do collapse, right? Like if history goes away, except at 20 colleges in the US, what do we do? Like, how do we keep producing this knowledge? And how do people get paid to produce this knowledge? Um, and I mean, I, I just think those answers end up being more structural than individual. Um, mm -hmm. But there's certainly conversations that we need to be having, right? Um, I want to name that the only person who had any kind of proposal uh, for the academic jobs crisis um, in the past 10 years that would have done anything was Bernie Sanders, who in his platform had a proposal that teaching uh, had to be done by full-time staff. Mm. And that would have, that would have like, that was the, that you need that, you need the law, right? Because otherwise it is always gonna be cheaper to have contract faculty and it is always gonna be better for the institution to have contract faculty who you can churn through. Um, and in Germany, we have the situation where it works a little differently. So basically, instead of the cutoff happening after the PhD, the cutoff happens later. So the, the, you have 10 years between your PhD and timing out of the system to get a professorship. And if you don't get the professorship, then you have to keep teaching for free, not be paid until you get it or you don't get it. Most people don't, obviously. Um, and so you end up with people really crashing out of the profession, like at 35, at 40, at 42, like right in that sort of 40 age range is when people get the professorship for 25 years or don't, right? And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just inhumane um, and people just get run through um, and that is not sustainable, right? And eventually people are going to figure it out and stop signing up for this um, if we don't start having a more adult conversation about what outcomes from these programs look like and what they should look like and what we should expect from them. Yeah. I don't think it does well, anyone any favors the, to pretend they're different. Yeah. And the audience that we have here, um, those who are academics are probably shaking their head in agreement. I think the majority have voice to me that they all see these concerns. I would say those who listen to this, though, who are in entertainment, we have a lot of performers who listen. We have those in publications. Um, the magazine industry, um, PR, a lot of PR publicists, a lot of them all have literary or history or humanities, philosophy backgrounds, lawyers. Um, mm -hmm. There's it's such a wide range. But, you know, coming from a literature program, I'll say what's exciting is I now offer internships through the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And there's at mm -hmm. least now a list of three other podcasters who I'm friends with who they're getting connected to Stony Brook University for internships through journalism, through uh, communications. And I'm happy, though, that Stony Brook sees, oh, there's this opening now for podcasters, for media internships, that um, what it is, and I'm sure you see this, Ben, is the faculty don't have the outside experience. Like, they aren't coming from it would be different if it was a business department, for example, because my parents are in business. My dad's an accountant. My mom was a pharmaceutical sales rep, then became a math teacher. Um, they have a lot of faculty who are can, who are contingent or who are part-time because they work in industry. And I'm thinking, well, that's a great model. Where are the actors? Where are the... Um, they are in a theater program, of course. <laughs> Um, but like, where are the ones who came from a PhD program? Where is the net to see, oh, wow, 
Our university hired someone who's now in a radio station. Our university hired someone who works for CNN or, you know, works for this corporation, for Penguin, for Random House, and actually having them, having a mix, right? Having those who went through, quote unquote, the traditional academic group, but having that other side. And I don't see the other side. Um, I don't see necessarily that connection yet, like where you have a hybrid approach for who's um, who's training the PhDs. So I don't know. That's my hope is eventually we have more of a humanities industry experience. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. Do you have a queer fascination with classic films? Ever wish you'd be transported back to that golden age of cinema as if you're in the movies themselves? Hi. My name is Christian Garcia, and I am the host of that old gay classic cinema. Join my friends and I as we travel back in time to that classic age of film and peel back the layers of how these films transformed our view behind the camera and into the lens of cinema. Make sure to follow my Instagram at that old gay classic cinema, and I'll be sure to save you a seat at our next showing. See you there. In addition, well, I think it would be part of figuring out what training that makes sense for the actual outcomes that are happening would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But, right, that also, in a way, the university has to come to the realization that um, almost bursting the bubble of, oh, most aren't going into the university profession, but letting that in my opinion, well, isn't that wonderful that your university is now being represented by people in such a wide variety of careers that that it isn't anything shameful, right? You were kind of talking about gaslighting a few minutes ago, like letting go of that gaslighting of, you know, don't say out loud that you're not going into the university profession. Like once, I, I feel like once there's a collective uh, realization of that, that it's spoken by um, departments and that the university supports that idea, then we'll see a large shift happen. But we'll see. You know, you and I, we could offer the ideas, but um, like you said, it does become structural. And that is right. And the other yeah. thing is that these creative industries are also not. I mean, there are people who are training, there are specific kinds of training that you train for to work at these industries, right? That are different. And these are also extremely competitive. And these are also being affected by a lot of the same forces that are affecting academic production. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's just important that people really not expect magic bullets. Um, yeah. yeah. But I would say networking, um, like my advice is for those listening who are like, wait, where's the advice better Andrew are going to give with bad gaze or the ivory tower boiler room? Don't worry, we're getting back to bad gaze. 
But I think it is important because we both are in similar positions. Um, you know, I'm finishing my dissertation by the summer. Um, you know, you're a doctoral fellow. Like we have very key prescient questions in the forefront of what we're thinking about together that my advice is thinking of networking as um, to be connected with as many people as possible who are outside your industry has to me been the success and what where the opportunities have come from for me has been not just connecting to university faculty. That to me is not what I would do if I were all of you. I would connect to as many different industries who have similar, who you're connected to in your person, like who you listen to, who that's where to me social media is so helpful is actually talking to talent and to writers and understanding how they're able to have the opportunities they do. That it's all about the network, it, it, you know? And I I know it's easier said than done, but um, yeah. And it take, it's risk taking, but you're right, Ben, to identify that it becomes a financial decision for a lot of people. And that's important to know too. Like if you don't have a safety net of money to rely on, uh, taking the risks don't seem uh, plausible because, you know, at the end of the day, you're thinking of how am I getting paid? Um, and yeah, and these things are not, uh, yeah, none of these things are, like the problem in all of these industries is that all these industries are facing an acute crisis of people being paid for their work, right? Mm -hmm. There is not a crisis of audience. There is not a crisis of any of that. There's a crisis of people being paid for their work. And it's for slightly different reasons, which are all related, right? Um, but the way that we change that um, is not by building our own networks, right? We can, we can try to do the best that we can to stay afloat. Um, I also think it's important that we are extremely, extremely generous while we do that. Um, and we don't let these systems and these institutions turn us into mm -hmm. the kinds of beings that they want us to be, right? Which is people who see each other as fundamentally competition. Um, we see each other as networks and competition and not as humans, right? That is a that is just a that is a, a degraded way to to exist in the world and a horrible way to treat people um, and to be treated. Um, but we have to do that networking while also actually engaging to change the structural conditions under which we live, right? Otherwise, we're not getting anywhere towards anything like a solution to any of this on an individual or a collective level. And that's my yes. bottom line. Yeah. And what I find that I'd love you to speak about like, is doing all of this. It's such an interesting historical method that you do that I am going like that I love doing. You're actually now a mentor. Your book, your podcast uh, with Hughes, uh, a mentor uh, for me, which is this methodology of starting from antiquity from Hadrian to then the present period, which, you know, would not be quote unquote, a typical historical book. Like usually you'd have to focus on a specific period and, um, or for literary fields, which is changing, but um, that it would be one or two authors. So what I love is what did you learn from that process of having to do so much research for all of these figures? in history. Yeah, I mean it's a so the the book is centered around the kind of familiar probably to people who listen to this show um modern story of the kind of birth of the homosexual identity, right? And the people that we talk about before are people who help us understand how that happened. They're people who uh, maybe exemplify similar themes. They're people who became uh, kind of uh, reference points for people later, right? Um, and so I think one of the things that was that was interesting about it was first, I mean, just each one of the stories is really fascinating to learn more about, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but also I think, especially for the kind of really trained cynical constructionist that I am, um, to the number of moments where I would get someplace and like read a letter or something and just think, oh my God, you queen, 
like the 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 ways that stuff really do, does i mean it, with the with the bracketing that we know that we are good constructionists right the ways that things really do kind of um that time can really collapse when you're doing this kind of work right and that things can kind of uh, jump across eons um, and and right into your heart um, or elsewhere um, is really something that that has continually struck me while working on the show and the book. Yeah. Well, and to leave us all, which I can't believe it's the end of our time, but I always say that. Uh, I feel like we covered a lot from, you know, really bad gays to you had some sexual moments. Uh, I opened up a little. Um, Still didn't get Ben to talk about any bedroom in secrets, but, you know, feel free if you want to end on that note, Ben. Um, but also talking about institutional, uh, the PhD, uh, which I know so many who listen to this will appreciate. Like, we've covered every audience. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I feel like you know this format very well. Um, I wonder why. And... I want to end on, was there one specific sorted or a history that you wrote about in the book that just really surprised you, like knocked you off your feet when you started to dig more into it? I want to go back to the Jack Saul chapter because I think there's just so much going on in there. Uh, first, you've got the history of sex work in Victorian London. Uh, then you've got the history of people who are really living in ways that are um, definitely kind of proto-trans or gender non-conforming um, with the story of, of Fanny and Stella, these two um, actors, actresses. Um, I mean, it, it's complicated, right? Because they there's, there's a gay male way to tell the story and there's a trans way to tell the story. And we try to kind of do both and explain how we're doing it. But uh, they're both sort of working in the theater of the time, um, living, you know, semi-full-time um, in trans subjectivities and in trans ways. Um, and and the ways that they talk about themselves, the way that they the ways that they write to one another, um, the ways that they appear in public, all of it is just uh, really puts the lie to the idea that um, there's this kind of moment of gay liberation when before then everyone was closeted, and then after that everything kind of emerges forward, right? There's there's so much uh, there's so much going on, there's so much to learn about, and there's so much both commonality and specificity in terms of how these stories play out uh, in different times and places, um, and so that that's and and there's a lot of really 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 it's the dirtiest chapter in the book so that's also oh fun. yeah there's a gangbang <laughs> spoiler a gang bang alert everyone uh no. don't worry they, we've our audience here has heard more sexual right. conversation um right <laughs> but well, should we end on a gangbang then andrew well you know maybe we'll let the we'll let the audience think about what's happening in that section of your book like what kind of uh positions are going on and uh well you know, maybe they could think about where you would fit into this scenario and where I would fit into this scenario. Have fun with We're that. Al ultimately, they could not do that. Um, I think we should let them decide. Um, That's true. A choose your own adventure. Right. Where <laughs> We also don't want to upset your partner, too. I don't want any of that happening. Uh, <laughs> but, Ben, this has been so wonderful. Um you know, thank you for your time. Thanks for explaining everything about bad gays. But he touched the surface. Uh, you know, there is just like a bang gang, a bang gang. Oh, gosh, a gang bang. I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. We'll see. But, you know, just like a gang bang, um, it seems like such an exciting fantasy. In reality, a gangbang has a lot of complicated <laughs> twists and turns, literally intricacies. Uh, and holes that you'll have to endure. So I would like to say Bad Gaze is that kind of gangbang of so many maze-like twists, turns, sinews. And I can honestly tell you that no one has described the book uh, that way before. Um, and just so people know, uh, the place they can find it is at badgazepod.com slash book. Um, badgazepod.com slash book. Sorry. Oh, and how can they follow you, Ben? They can and, follow uh, me uh, on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. Okay. Oh, and Bad Gaze has an awesome Instagram. And I Bad Gaze has Bad Gaze. We're Bad Gaze Pod is, is Bad Gaze Pod on social media. So find everywhere. Us on, find everywhere. Us on, okay. Instagram. Thank you, Ben. This has been so wonderful. And I can't Thanks, wait for Andrew. everyone to like send you feedback, send me feedback. I don't know. Now I'm kind of, did we just open Pandora's box about gangbangs? I don't know. <laughs> Bye, Let, Ben. Let's see. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the pink triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopia novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really yes, great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. <laughs>